You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In today's lesson, titled Goodness and Love, Philip Edwards concludes the module teaching on the application of goodness and love in our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk to see the other ministries we have to offer and to keep up with all the latest news. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. I'd like to do a brief recap. Uh, it's easy, we just uh, go verse by verse really because we've taken just one or two verses each week. The first week we looked at the, the, the opening verse, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. God's promise there is to supply all of our needs. Uh, there were no uh, special needs that, um, that David made reference to. He said all of my needs. So whether they're material or physical or spiritual or emotional or social, uh, there will be no lack. So there's no need to get stressed, as far as God is concerned, with lack. He has promised to supply those things that we need. So we'll not stress over that. In week two, we looked at the verse, I will fear no evil, for you will be with me, your rod and your staff, they will comfort me. It's wonderful to think that God has made provision for us in our lives. Everything that we need, he will supply and we won't lack anything. But he's gone a lot further than that and he's promised himself to be with us. He will presence himself. He will never leave us, it says. He will never forsake us or let us down. We also saw the promise of the rod and the staff. And we know that really to live to know in a way that we know his presence, we have to take his correction, his discipline in our lives, which the rod represents. Of course, we have to lean on the staff, which is to lean on him. He doesn't want us to be independent. He wants us to lean on him so we would always know his presence. In week three, uh, we looked at the verse, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. A table has been prepared for us, but we have to go to the table. We have to receive what he has for us. We have to sit at the table and commune with him and to fellowship with him. As we do this, he promises an anointing. And we said that anointing was the anointing of joy in our lives, in spending time with him and and going to him. And he also says our cup will overflow. And just draw the conclusion to that, that it's probably that God will meet us in abundance. He won't hold back, but he'll he'll do more than we ever could expect of him. Today we're going to go into week four, which is the, the last step that David takes us through with this psalm. Psalm 23, then in verse six, it says this, Surely goodness and love will follow me. All the days of my life, not just now and again, his promise is to be with us always and that his love and his mercy or his goodness and his love will follow us every day of our lives. This is truly 
a psalm for living. We, we are often familiar with it because people use it as uh, when, when, when there's a funeral and that's the most common or regular place where it's used. And so we, we think of this psalm being a psalm for the dead. But uh, as we've looked at it, we see very much it's a psalm for the living. Again, we see in this verse uh, a number of clear promises or assurances from God. As I said at the beginning in the introduction, there can be a hundred promises, but unless we approach the word of God with tremendous faith and believe it to be true and lay hold of the promises and stand on his word, then they don't do us much good at all. So we take this word and we take it on board and we, we put our faith and our trust in it. Three clear promises then from this verse. He says, surely, surely, not maybe or might be, but surely, it's an indisputable fact. Surely something will happen. What? Goodness and love will follow me. Where I go, the goodness and the love of God will be with me all the time. When will it follow me? All the days of my life. From the minute we commit ourselves to Christ, Christ is committed to us. He will never leave us. He will never let us down. He will be with us. Surely he will be with us all the time. What is the psalmist saying when he says this? Is it saying that every day in your life will now be wonderful? Now you've come to Christ that, oh, it'll be wonderful now. Goodness will follow you all your life. The mercy of God will follow you all your life. This Christian life is, is just come to him and everything gets sorted. All your problems get sorted. Your life would be problem free, stress free. Well, uh, from day one, from the first minute, I said that's not true. And because you don't have to be a Christian very long to have worked it out that that's not true. It doesn't matter what the evangelist says. They're great at selling you the gospel and God bless every one of them. They guess everyone in the kingdom. That's not, a, that's not a word of criticism. They're doing their job wonderfully. But it's the job of the pastor and the teacher to say, now you're in, I'll tell you the truth. Now you're in, we'll look at the reality of what this Christian life is all about. See, the ministry of Jesus, it was perfect. In fact, everything that Jesus did was perfect. But there were many dark chapters in his life. And so it's the, it's the similar thing for us. Walking with the Lord is a perfect thing, but there will be dark chapters in our life. Jesus, when he walked through these dark periods, he could see through all the shame that was heaped upon him or the pain that he had to go through or all the discomfort he could, he could somehow draw upon a joy that was on the inside of him to carry him through. We're going to be looking at this joy on the inside in, in some detail tonight. It says when he went to the cross, which must have been the darkest experience of his life, for the joy that was set before him, for what he could see, for what he could believe in, for what he, he had faith for, the joy... It, it, it started to rise within him. May I suggest that the joy didn't come from outside. The joy was something that was in him. It says the joy of the Lord, this joy that was resident within him, 
was his strength that carried him through. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, where, where stress and anguish was at its greatest, deep down inside of him, he could draw on something that could give him tremendous strength. So through, through that strength, he could fulfill his mission. He could do what his father had sent him to do. He could complete the work that he had come to do. Just think of those other stressful times in the life of, of Jesus. He said he had nowhere to lay his head. Remember when they came after him to, to follow him, he says, listen, even the animals and the birds can get their head down, but I can't, I can't promise you anything. We, we go on the road and I, I can't say it's going to be easy because it won't. So that, that, that was uncomfortable for him. There was misunderstanding, wasn't there, from his family. I'm sure that hurt him. It was a difficult period of his life as, as people were clamouring after him and he was saying and doing things that, that were upsetting a lot of people and his, his family were worried and concerned for him quite a lot. He was tempted, we know personally, by Satan himself in the wilderness. He faced death threats over and over again. He was abandoned by his closest followers and disowned by probably his, his best friend. Paul, considering his hardship then and, and ours, said this in Romans 8 and 18. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So Paul was saying, listen, there will be present sufferings. I suffer you will suffer. But let me tell you, that which is coming, the glory that you will enjoy for eternity, it won't seem like anything when we stand in that place. Tremendous words of encouragement. The goodness and the love of God, I can say with complete honesty, has followed me every day of my life. And I know it will continue to do so. See, like Jesus, I've had dark periods in my life. Things have gone very bad or wrong, very difficult, embarrassing, full of shame maybe, or difficulty, misunderstandings, being accused of things, very dark things. But as I look back over the years, I can honestly say that goodness, goodness of love and, and, the, and the love of God has followed me every step of the way. I want to bring to you three possible applications of love and fellowship following us. The first application I have is God dealing with us as people, as Christian people. As we journey through life, we'll get some things wrong in our life. We won't get it all right. It's a picture for us in Scripture. When we get things right, it's as though God is smiling at us. We've done something right. It's, it's a bit like um, basking in the sunshine on a lovely day. That, that as, we, as we walk in righteousness, we have a sense of well-being with God, a sense of his love being 
shown to us. When we get things wrong in life, when we act unrighteously, we should attract the wrath of God. Now notice, I said that we should attract his wrath, but we don't. We don't because Christ has presented himself to take upon himself the wrath of God that we deserve. Let me try and explain this in a little more detail. If I imagine that God is is in front of me, and and to the right of God, Christ is, is on the cross. And so I can look into the face of God. As I walk in righteousness, the love of God comes to me. God doesn't decide to love me. Walking in righteousness, it simply attracts the love of God. It is as though God is not choosing to love me or not love me. Walking in righteousness attracts his love to me. It's the similar thing with the wrath of God. When we are disobedient and act in an unrighteous way, God doesn't decide to be angry with us or, or, or somehow to express his wrath. Just as, just as righteousness attracts the love of God, so unrighteousness attracts, uh, attracts to us the wrath of God, the anger of God. And that can be displayed in several ways. But to the right, here's Christ on the cross. And, and I have put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I recognise I do things wrong, but I have trusted him as my saviour, the one who has paid the price for my sin. So instead of the wrath of God coming to me when I'm unrighteous or do what I shouldn't, Jesus has come and taken the wrath of God upon himself. And so, so I don't experience that wrath of God in my life anymore. Now, it says that those who don't put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the wrath of God is being stored up for them. That's a horrible thought. What's the point then? The point is, when I get things right, I enjoy the goodness of God. When I do things wrong, I enjoy the love or the mercy of God. When I get things right, I enjoy the love of God. When I get things wrong, I walk in unrighteousness, I now receive the mercy of God. I'm guilty, that's why it's mercy. So I'm in a win-win situation now because what's going to come from God to me is either the love of God or the mercy of God. So the love, the goodness and the mercy of God follow me all the days of my life. That doesn't mean I take advantage of God. It just knows that when I slip or when I make a mistake or when I act in a way that doesn't please him, what is going to come to me is not the wrath of God, but the mercy of God. Goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. Like I say, a win-win situation for us. The second application I have of the goodness and mercy following us is that God gives us angelic protection. I haven't got great sermons for this, but we know that um, 
We know that angels do look after us. Some years ago uh, in London when I was preaching, uh, some days after I'd finished, the, the, a lady rang me up from the congregation and she said, oh, I, I, I don't want to sound a bit weird, but I, I saw something on Sunday when you were preaching and I, I, I didn't want to say anything, but I, I, can't, I can't get it out of my head. So I've got to ring you now and tell you what that is. I said, oh, that's fine, just, just say what it is. She said, as you were preaching, I saw standing behind you two enormous angels, one on one side and one on the other. She said, that's all. I said, oh, thanks very much. I don't think you're weird at all. God shows us sometimes things and you're obviously sensitive to that and that's what you saw. So just, just thank you very much. Sometime later when I was... I forget if I was studying something or simply reading this, the thought came to me that what she saw were these two angels, goodness and mercy, goodness and love. I use the word mercy because I'm that old and the authorised version says goodness and mercy will follow you. So mercy is interchangeable with love. You understand that. But I do preach at the NIV, so I try to use it. But sometimes my age just catches up with me and I use these, these older words. But for this case, it was goodness and mercy. Goodness. These two angels were there. You see, on our journey, we do come under attack. And some of this attack is quite demonic. And it's quite evil. And we need assistance from time to time. And, and although we don't read about angels in the New Testament as much as the Old Testament, they're still there. Millions and millions of angels that God can send to protect us, to guard us, to look after us. It says in Hebrews 1 and 14, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So what that uh, young lady saw that day as she was sitting, it could have been a revelation from the spirit that there were angelic beings that were necessary, necessary to stand there. I can't remember what I was preaching on at the time. Maybe I was seeking to upset a few people. No, no, I wasn't doing that one, one for one minute. Um, but perhaps God thought I need some angelic protection on that particular day. These angels, what do they do? Well, you could have, use your imagination here. Uh, I'll give you an, an example from scripture in a minute. But goodness, goodness could carry you through. Mercy could lift you out of the problem. They've been sent by God, scripture says. The angels have been sent to guard us. Let me read to you what it says in Psalm 91 verses 9 to 12 it says if you make the most high your dwelling even the lord who is my refuge then no harm will befall you no disaster will come near your tent for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. 
Well, Psalm 91 has become very popular and it was at the beginning of the pandemic. Everyone said, oh, this is the wonderful psalm that we should all read. But of course, we know that this psalm is what happened to Jesus when, um, you know, he was on the cross. The idea that he could he could call angels if he needed them to deliver him, which he didn't want to do. And we also know when he was in the wilderness and Satan was there, uh, this this was quoted to Jesus saying, Angels, if you if you jump from the pinnacle of the temple, then angels could come and lift you up. So uh, just because we don't see them all the time, we mustn't poo-hoo the angels. The angels are real. I believe they're as active today and, and they might be even more active than what they were in the Old Testament. The third application I have for goodness and mercy following us Look behind you. On your journey, what have you left behind you? What is in the wake of your walk with the Lord? What, what is behind you? Broken relationships? Tragedy? Criticism? Or goodness and love? Well, before we come to Christ, some might leave a great trail of broken relationships and tragedy. We hope, though, that when we come to Christ and he starts to live in and through us, there is more goodness, there's more mercy and kindness that is behind us. Goodness and mercy following us, following us every day, of our lives. And if we can walk in a way where we walk in goodness and mercy, there's less stress, less stress for ourselves and less stress for others that we fellowship with, meet with, do actions with on a daily basis. I want to talk now a little bit about happiness. The generate the generating of happiness in our lives will obviously reduce stress. The Bible speaks very little about happiness and being happy because it doesn't use the word very often. It uses another word. It talks about blessing and being blessed. So when you read that word to be blessed or the blessing of the Lord, it is the happiness of God. So you can put that word in there very often and you wouldn't be too far away from what God is intending you to understand. So how and where can we find happiness in life? How do we find happiness in life? The answer to this question, I believe, is, is found in Matthew's uh, the early chapters of Matthew, where we read about the Sermon on the Mount. That's found in Matthew 5, 6 and 7, chapters 5, 6 and 7. In considering, uh, considering sorry, this passage, we're, we're really considering the essence of the Christian life. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6 and 7, is the essence of the Christian life. Equally, for most, the Beatitudes, which is the very start of chapter 5 there for Matthew, is the essence 
of the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount is the essence of Christianity and the Beatitudes, those first nine or ten verses in Matthew 5, is the essence of the Sermon. So you could say the Beatitudes are the essence of the essence of the Christian way of life. Can we read it together? Remember, the word blessing or blessed is the word that we would say means happy if we translated it that way. So let us read this together now. It's in Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to read the first 10 verses there. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In those opening verses of that passage I've just read to you, there are three expressions that, that really start by saying what you're going to read now is of vital importance. It's the essence of Christianity. Let's have a look at what these three expressions are. The first one in those couple of verses there, he said he went up a mountain and he sat down. The rabbi usually had a, a number in his school that followed him. As he walked and did whatever he did, his journeys and so forth, these guys would, would be around him all the time and he would speak to them. They were his disciples. He would, he would be training them. But when the rabbi wanted to teach with authority, he would find a place to sit himself down and he would teach with authority. So when Jesus went up the mount, he sat down. He sat down because he was saying, what I'm going to say to you is of prime importance. It's vital that you listen. Actually, I'm going to share with you the manifesto, the, the manifesto of the kingdom of God. Secondly, it says, he began to teach them. He began to teach them. Now, this, this is not just an elaborate way of saying that he said something. It says he began to teach them. He had something important to say. When it was declared like this, it was something important. If, like I say, I'm very conversant with the authorised version. In the authorised version, it doesn't say is that it, it uses a very strange term to us. It says, he opened his mouth. Well, of course he opened his mouth if he was going to speak to them. No, when it says he opened his mouth, it says he's going to say something of vital importance now. There's something of, uh, that or we should all listen to very carefully. And when it uses the expression to teach them, in the, in the Greek tense of that word to teach, 
It was a sense of being habitual, repeated. This is something he would say again and again and again. So Jesus goes up the mountain, he sits down, a declaration is made, he's going to say something of great importance, and what he says, he repeats it again and again. So what is it that he's going to say? What is it that I've tried to say is the essence of the essence of our Christian life? Have we missed something about the Beatitudes? Is it something more important that we've, we've not seen before? Let's have a look. The Beatitudes are written in statements. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it's, it's, there's eight statements of blessed. This is where it gets a little technical, so uh, stay with me. I'm only saying that because sometimes I can get lost. I'm not saying that, that you're not smart enough to follow it. I'm just saying sometimes it gets a bit convoluted in my mind. So stay with it and we'll try and work through this one together. The word, the word are should not be there. Now, you say, oh, here we go. He's going to be funny now. He's going to, he's going to drop words out and change the meaning of things. No, no, you can check all this for yourself. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. If you have an authorised version of the Bible, what they did in the authorised, where words were added to make sense in the English, they wrote them in italics. So if you have an authorised version, dig it up and look up the word. And if you look up, blessed are the poor in spirit, you'll see the R is, is in italics. It shouldn't be there. So we read something like this. Blessed the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This word blessed, if we were going to look it up in the Hebrew, it would not be written as blessed. It would be written like this. Oh, the bliss. Oh, the bliss. Oh, the happiness. So as we read that now, it says, oh, the bliss of the poor in spirit. Oh, how happy the poor in spirit are. This is to say the Beatitudes are not promises of future happiness. I've heard this preached a number of times. Once we get all this under our belt and we learn to, to live like this, we will enjoy the happiness God has for us. No, no, Jesus is speaking to the congregation that he's present and he says, oh, the bliss. It's a present, a present position, as it were, for all those who have come to Christ. So they are not statements of one day what is going to happen to the Christian in some other world. They are the affirmations of the bliss into which the Christian can enter here and now. See, when we come to Christ, we enter into Christ and Christ enters into us. And what Christ wants to give us is the bliss of these eight things in our lives. The minute we come to Christ, he wants to give us the joy, the happiness, the joy, the bliss, the blessing into our lives. What is this bliss I'm talking about? What is this blessedness? What is this 
happiness. It's nothing less than the blessedness of God. Because Christ has entered into our life, God has entered into our life, and the blessedness that is in God, the happiness that is in God, the bliss that is in God, enters into our life. Through Christ Jesus, we come to share in the very life of God. If that is so, it means that the Christian bliss, the Christian's happiness, the Christian's blessing is independent of outside circumstances. What I'm suggesting is, as we enter into Christ and Christ enters into us, a joy enters into us, Christ himself enters into us, a bliss enters into us that is not dependent upon outside things. Your happiness, your bliss, does not depend on external things. It depends on the fact that Christ has entered into your life. It has, within itself, all it needs for perfect happiness. What has happened when you've come to Christ is he's come to live inside of you. Do you think Jesus was anything else apart from blessed? Was he anything else apart from happy? Was he anything else apart from living in the bliss of God? Well, you say no. Well, it's him that has entered into you. So as we read this knowing this thought... When we say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing, does it make more sense that he has entered into you? The blessed one, the happy one has entered into you. He is always with you. He anoints you with the oil of joy and the Lord causes your cup to overflow in abundance. Like God, we can live an, a life of, as it were, eternal blessing. From when Christ enters into us, we live a life, like God, of eternal blessing. Let me explain how happiness can be Continuous, a continuous reality in the Christian. God introduces his people to something called the Sabbath. The word means rest, a period of rest. For the Christian, the Sabbath is not one day in seven. It's not. That's not what the Sabbath is. That was the Old Testament idea that man would work and labour, then he would rest one day, in the same way that God rested after he had made the world. But when God rested, he never worked again. He built the world and he rested. And the idea is that our rest should be continuous. When we come to Christ, we enjoy Christ, who is our Sabbath, he is our rest. 
It says this in Hebrews 4, 10 and 11. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter into that rest. Now, I'm not opposed to Sunday or meeting on Sunday or worshipping on Sunday, but I don't consider it the Sabbath anymore. The Sabbath is a continual, ongoing, daily relationship with God entering into our rest. In coming to Christ then, we enter into what is called his rest. And it's the Beatitudes that describe that condition for us. It describes what living in the rest is. Living with Christ is like. The first thing it is, and the list is there, we've read them, it's being poor in spirit. It is recognising that our continual dependence on the Holy Spirit. You can't live one day in dependence of God. His Spirit is essential for you to live this Christian life. So this rest that we enter into, the first part of it is to realise that we are poor in spirit. It doesn't matter how wonderful a spiritual day you had today, when you wake up tomorrow, you're in poverty again. And we need the Holy Spirit again and again and again to keep empowering our lives so you're always going to be poor in spirit. Always, every day of your life, you're going to be wanting more of the Spirit. It is also, this rest is in a place where we mourn. We're saddened that men and women are lost and the world is suffering Great pain. That is what entering into the rest is. It's mourning for them. It's being meek. It's knowing that you are strong in the Lord, but you choose to be gentle. You choose to be humble. See, the picture I'm drawing for you is what it is to receive the joy of the Lord in your strength. The bliss of God. The blessedness of God. Jesus experienced these eight things. This is what was inside Jesus. Okay, Jesus was dependent on the Holy Spirit. Jesus mourned. Remember when he went on, the, on Palm Sunday and he entered Jerusalem. He says, as soon as he saw Jerusalem, he came round the corner and he started to weep. He wept for the city. He wept for the people of the city. So this idea, the joy the joy of the Lord in there would cause sometimes this weeping. He's meek, I've said that. It's being hungry for righteousness, a passion for right living. I often think if I could live my life and not do anything ever wrong again, that's what I would want, God. That's what I would like to live my life. It's being merciful, showing others the mercy of God. It's being pure in heart, focused on what God wants. Focus on God. It says the pure in heart, those who focus on God, they will see God. It's about being a peacemaker, making peace with God, making peace with others and helping others to find peace with God. And it's being persecuted, accepting hardships for Christ's sake. As that comes into us, has those 
realities come into us and they settle within us, that is the bliss. That is the blessedness of God. That is the happiness of God. See, when it says the joy of the Lord shall be your strength, those those attributes, those virtues, those attitudes are, are resident within us and that's what gives us this internal joy. When we entered into Christ, we accepted these attitudes. Sometimes just read them again in your own time and say, have I accepted this as an attitude within me? Am I accepting the fact that I mourn for the lost? Am I focused on God? Am I merciful to others? Do I desire righteousness in my life? If those are your attitudes, then the word of God says, happy are you, blessed are you. The blessing of God is in you if those are your attitudes. You have a blessing within you. You have a happiness within you. The happiness. Is it, is it, it it's a deep-seated thing. Sometimes it's best to call it joy. Happiness, we think, is about smiling and feeling good all the time. So maybe this happiness that I'm describing is the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord inside of us. Remember Jesus said as he was going to the cross, for the joy of the Lord, there was a joy inside him. I don't think for one minute as Jesus was going through the agony and stress that he was smiling from ear to ear, but there was something deep within the side, inside of him. This, these attitudes that he had produced a joy, a happiness on the inside. Can I suggest to you then, there's two types of happiness. Oh, I knew, Phil. I knew it was coming. Okay. All right. What, uh, what is it? Okay. Well, the one is what I've described for you. It's a happiness that I think we could say is in our hearts. It's on the inside of us. It is the joy of the Lord. It is a happiness in our heart. We can have this permanently all the time because our attitude is the same as Christ's. The number two happiness is what I, what I describe, I've never heard anyone else describe it as this, is a happiness in our head. It's, it's more of an emotional response to things. So there is a happiness that is deep down with inside of you that you might like to call the joy of the Lord. And there is a happiness that I would say was in our head and it's linked to our emotional responses. Jesus always enjoyed the joy of the Lord. He never ever lost the joy of the Lord. His attitudes was the same as the Beatitudes and that is what gave him the joy deep inside him. And those attitudes are the attitudes that when we receive Christ, they come into us. The, the happiness that was in Jesus's heart was continual. He never left, lost it. And listen, once you understand and see this, you don't have to lose it either. 
you can maintain the joy of the Lord, the attitudes inside you constantly all the time. But like us, Jesus too had emotional responses. So at times this this happiness that I call in the head, the emotional responses, Jesus lost his happiness at times, always having the deep happiness within, but he lost the, the emotional happiness. I'll give you some examples to see if you agree with me on this. He wasn't very happy when, when Peter suggested that he don't go to the cross. In fact, he was cross. He said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're talking the words of Satan. That didn't make Jesus very happy. I'm talking about happiness, emotional happiness. He wasn't very happy with Judas at the Last Supper. As he, as he offers him the, the morsel and he, he encourages him not to go, but he sees he's determined to go, he says, you better go then and do the things you've got to do. So Jesus wasn't happiness. Happy inside, a, a joy inside, but not happy. He wasn't always happy with his disciples. They frustrated him sometimes. They, 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 they made him lose his cool, as it were. He was not always happy with his family. They didn't understand him. He wasn't happy always with the scribes and the Pharisees, was he? He often had to give them a piece of his mind. He wasn't happy with the teachers of the law. And he definitely wasn't happy when he went to the temple and found the buying and selling and doing all that stuff and he had to make a whip and and drive them all out. So although Jesus had this deep-rooted happiness within him, the joy of the Lord... Sometimes this, this that we call being happy up here, this emotional stuff, he lost it too. Because it's all tied in with our emotion. The golden rule then about happiness, never let the unhappiness that's in your head and in your mind and in your emotions, never let it stay there for long or trickle down. See, we can all be upset with people, upset with things, upset with circumstances, and we can lose a happiness. But if we allow that to stay and remain, it will affect the happiness that is deep within us, the joy. That's why in Ephesians 4 and 26, it tells us, in your anger, and of course anger is, is an expression that I've lost my happiness, and I'm frustrated with something or with somebody, he says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. So he's saying, deal with this, this unhappiness. Deal with this quickly. Move on. Move beyond it. Move beyond it quickly. What I have now just to finish this off well when a preacher says he's going to finish it off he means there's just another half hour to go so don't take any notice about that okay you're learning the tricks now aren't you okay but these are uh, some helpful tips to practice happiness and to reduce stress oh very practical these are when you're with others think of their point of view think of their point of view also when someone's expressing a point of view, you must differentiate between truth and opinion. 
not, not everything is truth. We should be lovingly stubborn over the truth, lovingly stubborn over the truth, but completely flexible over opinions. So I'm working out all the time, is this an opinion or is this the truth? If I believe it's the truth, I'm going to be stubborn. If it's an opinion, I can flow with that. I can accept that. We can just hold dozens of opinions if we want to. You see, an example of this, I have some very definite ideas about the church and ministry, but not everyone agrees with me. Oh, well, I'll have to put up with that. But in yielding to others' opinions, God will still have his way, whether I'm right or wrong. So work out what's an opinion and what is truth. And, and, and so try to entertain other people's opinions all the time. Number two is don't only think about the immediate consequences of your choices. Your choices should take into consideration short-term, medium-term and long-term consequences. It's all right now and again to spoil yourself with an immediate gratification. I'm not a misery. If you just wake up tomorrow and think, I've got to rush off and buy something, you just rush off and buy it. I mean, don't, don't do anything crazy, but enjoy, you know, the short-term immediate gratification. But... Is truth, isn't it? If you borrow now, you will pay later. So you have to work out some of these things. So think about the consequences of the decisions you make and it will create less stress in your life and maybe the life of your family and all of those connected with you. Think of happiness. Think of happiness as a natural state and unhappiness as an intrusion. It's a bit like when a cold comes. Naturally, we think healthy. When a cold comes, it's an intrusion. So think about happiness as your natural state. Not only this deep happiness in here that comes from having the same attitude of Christ, but happiness up here in our emotions, in our thinking, in our head. Speaking of Jesus, this is what the psalmist said in Psalm uh, 45 and 7, and we have looked at this before. He says, you love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Therefore, God your God has set you above your companions and anointed you with the oil of joy. See, Jesus was anointed throughout his ministry with joy. But I've said he wasn't happy, happy all the time, but he was anointed. The, the, the spirit of God was deep within him. His attitude, the, the, the inner joy of the heart was constantly within. Through, through the Holy Spirit, Christ is made real on the inside of us. And his values, the values that are in Christ, they become our values. And we know that what those values are. The values are the fruit of the Spirit. And it says this, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. 
Isn't it interesting that the one that follows love is joy? Is joy. Goodness and mercy will follow you every day of your life. God's plan is that you be happy in your life, that you know the deep-rooted joy of God within your heart. And if you consider the others, think how happy they make you. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The whole, every one of those fruits of the Spirit only bring happiness into our lives. We're supposed to meditate on things that are good. Think of six good reasons why you should be happy. Well, I'm going to heaven, wherever heaven is. Um, I won't go there tonight because you know a little bit of what I think about that. Anyway, I'm going to the next world where Jesus is and I'm going to live with him forever. That brings a smile to my face. I think of Jesus and that makes me very happy. The family either my own personal family or the family of Christ. When I think of the church and what a wonderful thing the church of Jesus Christ is. When I think of all the health I've enjoyed. When I think of the future hopes I have. It goes on and on and on. See, we are to think about things that would make us happy. There's a lot that can make you unhappy, but don't meditate on them. Learn to adjust to the present situation. Failure not to adjust would only bring a disadvantage to your life. Life is fluid. It moves all the time. Circumstances change. Things move on. Learn to adapt without complaining. Oh, God really hates grumblers and complainers. Oh, I mean, what he would have done to them in the wilderness is no one's business if it wasn't for Moses putting his hands up and stopping God. So we have to be careful because grumbling and complaining is one of the big things that God is a big no-no with God. So things change all the time. I remember once we bought a property and it was in a town and we thought, oh, that's wonderful to, to live so close to the centre of the town. The only thing was every night I had to park my car three streets away. Okay, so, so like, like there's good and there's bad in all stuff, but of course I don't park my car three streets away now. And, and everything changes, see, it all moves on in time. If you are in the habit of focusing attention on negatives, just start focusing on positives. You say, well, that's the way I am. I'm a melancholic I'm a bit negative. Well, I get that. Well, you have to do something about it or just leave it like it is. No, you can change. You can change. We can change. God wants us to be positive. Learn to focus on the positive things and the happy things in life. Nothing in this world is perfect. It's all tainted by sin. There isn't anything that isn't tainted by sin. Sin has has found its way into every fold in life. Everything is messed up. Everything is messed up. But of course we're going to look for the good, the positives, the things that we can go forward in. As an example of this, I heard the story once about this, uh, this elderly lady. It must have been uh, quite an old story because it was the time when uh, dentists weren't readily available. This this lady, apparently she only had two teeth left in her head. 
but she constantly praised the Lord for these two teeth. Do you know why? Because they were opposite one another. And she thought, what's the chance of that? They could have been like both on the top or both on the bottom or miles apart. But she praised God because the teeth were opposite one another. So when she needed to chew a little bit, she could do it. The media tends to celebrate disaster, criticism, wrongdoings and scandal. Why? Because it's easier. It's an easier way to arouse the interests of other people. As I thought about this, I thought, well, yeah, that's constantly the way the news is. But it's only the church, which is an expression of God's kingdom on earth, that rejoices over testimony and it mourns wrongdoing. We love a testimony, don't we? We love to hear a testimony of some of the wonderful things that God is doing. Another thing is that most of our thinking is judgment-based. What I mean by that, our thinking is all about argument. Uh, It's all about logical deduction. It's all about proving a point. Men are always doing this, aren't they? You, You bring up a subject and they're always arguing. Blokes are terrible at it. They just all the time, oh, you know, I know better. Ooh, I know better. Uh, that's not the way we should talk with one another. Let's be creative in our talking. Let's be, um, I don't know, inventive. Let's be objective in our talking. Judgment brings the past, you know, into the present, where creative thinking, it brings the future into the present. An example of this, if in our relationship we got off on the wrong foot, you'll always see me like that. Our friendship or any possible friendship is doomed from the beginning because it's all based on judgment, past judgment. But if you can see us getting along okay in the future, we'll be able to do something about that and bring the future possibilities into the present. The last one thought for you is creating or reducing stress at the point of contact. A greeting, a word, a conversation, a discussion. Every time you meet with someone, you deposit something with them. They deposit with you, especially if you open to that person. Could we deposit happiness and goodness and love instead of sadness and unkindness and judgment? Uh, Always finding fault and making sure the person knows what their fault is. Rather, just think of all the good stuff and just leave a positive Uh, deposit then when you meet with them. So, let's think about reducing stress for ourselves and others by making sure that goodness and love, they follow us every day of our lives. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching 
And please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can sign up for our next module, Revival. From all the team here at Arise Ministry, we wish you a very happy Easter. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.